Hello, my name is Colin Donnell, and you're listening to episode 15 of The Run Loop, a weekly discussion about designing and developing iOS and Mac apps. Today's guest is Brian Papa. Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, Colin. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. How is your day going? Oh, it's great. Uh, you know, just dealing with some of the uh, humidity here in New York. Uh, definitely great weather for turning off the air conditioning in your apartment to record a podcast. What is the uh, what is the weather like today for the so that let's paint a word picture. It's been really sticky lately in New York. Um, I mean, you know, we're, we're recording this in the end of July, uh, and it's it's been very humid. Um, luckily, we got a little bit of rain today, so there was a bit of a reprieve. But um, all in all, pretty gross out. Hmm. I've only lived uh, I've only lived on the West Coast, and my feeling is is that if you are born on the West Coast, you can never move east because the weather only gets more extreme going that direction. Yeah. I mean, here you get just like nice little pockets of weather, you know, maybe two or three weeks at a time, maybe like four or five times a year. Uh, The rest is pretty miserable. Um, Whereas with San Francisco, like, you know, you know what you're always going to get, right? Or even in uh, Southern California, you know, you're, you know what you're always going to get there. Uh, So it's, it's the consistency, I think, that's key. Yeah, where I live in San Francisco, I live in a district called uh, the Sunset, or as uh, people in San Francisco would refer to it as Mars, because they I live two miles away from downtown, so they think that's really far. <laughs> uh, I uh, and it is basically always about fifty seven degrees and overcast in the area that I live in, regardless of the time of year or anything. Yeah, that sounds great. Like, you know, you can just have one wardrobe. You don't have to worry about packing your clothes up and and shoving them in an attic or storage, uh, only to have to bring them back out again six months later. Um, That consistency sounds really, really desirable. It is okay. I like to describe it as always being mildly unpleasant, but never, uh, never terrible. So, Brian, uh, how would people be familiar with you from the internet and whatnot? Um, well, I mean, if you live in New York um, and you've gone to any iOS meetups uh, or, or anything in the community here, we've probably met, we've probably uh, shook hands. You might have seen me speak once or twice. Um, I've always been very active in the community, um, really ever since the SDK came out. So uh, what is that, like nine years ago now? Just about. Yeah. Um, if you're not in New York, um, I've never really been one for, for speaking at conferences or anything like that. Um, you know, we may have met at WWDC. Um, you may have listened to my short-lived podcast about the intersection of iOS development and professional wrestling. Um, or you may be familiar with my work. Um, you know, I've been doing iOS for a while. And uh, most recently, for the past couple of years, I've been working at The Skim. And uh, just for for the people at home who may not be familiar, what is the Skim? So it's a media company that's focused on um, the female millennial, and uh, I've been there for a couple of years working on our app. Um, it's it's one of the better performing of late uh, news apps in the App Store. We're pretty consistent um, in the top grossing uh, list in in iTunes. And um, yeah, you know, we're, we're uh, delivering information to the female millennial every day. Excellent. I think there are probably several of those. So going back to the beginning, you said you got started in iOS development uh, about, you know, when the SDK came out. Uh, how did you get started with programming? Uh, it really started as a, as a kid. Um, not that I was coding as a kid, but I kind of had a path mapped out for me. Um, and that was, uh, basically based on being a huge gamer as a child. Um, and even today as a 37 year old man, um, I was a big Nintendo fan, still am today. And, um, you know, I loved my NES back in the day, played it all the time. Um, and you know, my grandfather was like, Hey, I bet you could make a lot of money, uh, working on these things. And I was like, oh, interesting. You know, I had never thought that people uh, made 
the video games. You know, I, I just kind of assumed they appeared magically in, in Toys R Us and I could, I could beg my parents to buy me one for, for 50 or $60. Um, so, you know, he kind of got that idea in my head. Um, and then, you know, when I was starting high school, um, I was lucky enough to go to a, a school that actually had a, um, programming class available to, to students. Um, the only thing was that it had a couple of prerequisites in front of it. Like you had to have, you know, so many years of, of state standardized math. Um, and then, uh, similarly, there was a computer graphics class as well. Uh, I can't remember the name of the, the software that, that the class was in, but, um, it also had a prerequisite of, of art, uh, studio art, which was, you know, mm-hmm. stuff like, you know, sketching and stuff like that. Um, so my mother, um, she kind of took the initiative and, and looked at, at these two courses and was like, you know, you need to take this one you're, when you're a, a sophomore and you're going to take that one when you're a junior and you're going to take this pre- prerequisite when you're a freshman. And, and my mom uh, really helped map out, uh, you know, the, the sort of like early days of my, of my software engineering career. Um, and then, you know, a couple of years after that, I was in college, uh, took computer science. Um, but it was really, you know, the, the interest in gaming that, that got me, uh, got me interested in, in, in this as a career. So I think you are the second biggest Nintendo fan I know after myself. Um, thank you. <laughs> yeah. We had a small meetup at WWDC, uh, where we played some Mario Kart with a couple of other people. Oh, that was great. I mean, that just shows how awesome the Switch is, right? That, that uh, you know, some four people can just pull out their systems um, really, really easy to network with one another. And, I mean, we, we sat there for, what, like an hour maybe in the hotel mm-hmm. lobby playing? Just about, yeah. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, I, uh, I, I really love the Switch. I think it's a fantastic device. I'm, I'm glad that things seem to be going well for Nintendo again since the last you know, a couple of years have been a little scary for them. Yeah. I mean, really like last year, you know, it, it, it seemed like there was so many cool things that they were doing. I mean, um, everybody was really excited about, you know, Zelda breath of the wild when it was announced. And then, um, the NES classic was huge. Um, Pokemon go was a big deal. Right. I mean, that's, you know, more the Pokemon company than Nintendo, but still Nintendo's part of that. Um, so just as, yeah, yeah, and just you know, as a as a lifelong Nintendo fan, um, it's awesome to see them doing well. And actually, I mean, like for for both you and I, I mean, uh, watching that Apple event that I th- I forget if it was the if it was the iPhone event or if it was one that came a month or two later. Um, I think it was at the iPhone. I don't remember. It was the one where uh, where uh, Miyamoto showed up, though. Yeah, yeah, which was amazing, right? He came out like five minutes in and. And it was it was quite the the spectacle. I was I, I feel like I probably almost cried. It was it was pretty amazing to see, you know, my two favorite companies kind of together like that. Yeah, and I I mean I think of them actually as being pretty similar in a lot of ways. Um, I think that in the last couple of years, maybe uh, Nintendo has had a few more missteps than Apple has recently. But as far as the like. Um, sort of philosophy of the companies, I think, and like what they try and do, I think of them as being very similar. Yeah. It's interesting that, um, there's, there's a bit of a crossover, I think, between Apple enthusiasts and Nintendo fans. I mean, there's a lot of Apple enthusiasts that like all sorts of games, but, um, you know, it seems like I, I find a lot that, you know, just iOS developers I follow on Twitter or something, um, actually turn out to be really big Nintendo fans. And I had no idea, and I guess it's you know something with the the, the maybe the de- design philosophies that the two companies might share, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it's 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 really cool to see that that crossover. Yeah, I think they definitely both have that philosophy of you know being very being a little bit more secretive and uh, trying to give people what they don't know that they want, as opposed to just giving them exactly what they think they want. Does that make sense? Oh, no, totally. I mean, right, like Apple does that all the time um, with, you know, even the iPhone. Like, I remember, you know, thinking, oh, wow, Apple's going to make a phone. It's going to be awesome. It'll it'll probably, like, 
you know, work like a Mac does. And, and, um, you know, I'll probably have a, a calendar app and there'll be a, you know, I'll, there'll be a dock at the bottom and, and, and a menu bar at the top and all. And then, you know, iOS turned out to be a lot different than, than Mac OS was at the time. Um, cause yeah, they, I, I feel like they, you know, they knew that that was, that was really the right way to do a phone. And Nintendo kind of does the same things with, you know, something like Splatoon, which, um, you are playing as well, right? That just came out. Yeah, it's one weekend. of my favorite games. Yeah, and it's yeah. I remember when that was announced. Um, kind of a lot of people were like, "Hey, eh, you know, this, you know, we like particular kinds of first-person shooters, and and this has paint, and like, is it supposed to be like a Mario Sunshine thing?" Yeah. Um, and then it turns out that it's awesome. Yeah, their version of a first-person shooter is a. Uh, is a third-person sort of non-shooter, right? <laughs> it's a third-person painter, right? And I mean, you know, your 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 main objective is not even to shoot the other people; it's to spray <laughs> spray paint on the ground. Yeah, it actually doesn't matter that much if you you know splat the other. You don't actually even kill the other opponent, right? You just splat them. But you're not. It's very uh, it's very fun, right? And I, I I I really love that game. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, I played quite a bit of it um, the, f- the last couple of days. I'm, I'm already, you know, up to level 10. I've, I figured I might get up to level 5 by the end of the weekend, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, put in a few more hours than, than I was anticipating. Yeah, I um, need to get up to level 10 so I can get into the, uh, the competitive modes, the, uh, the ranked battles. Yeah, I actually, I tried to play um, online with you, um, which which is another interesting crossover, I think, between Apple and Nintendo. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, I tried to play online with you. I got this this app from the App Store. Um, you know, I, I set up a room. Um, I went into the game itself on my Switch and couldn't figure out a way to contact you to say like, "Hey, Colin, let's play." It mm-hmm. just said, you know, your room was full and we couldn't play. <laughs> so, you know, I was just kind of sitting there in my room all alone. And, and there's been a big outcry on the internet over, um, you know, the, the way that Nintendo has kind of handled this. Um, I don't really play games with voice chat all that much. So, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't really bother me. But um, a lot of people are really frustrated. And um, it just kind of reminded me of like, you know, how, you know, people will get really frustrated at Apple for not maybe doing things the way that they see it. Like, you know, perfect example is the, uh, you know, the sort of outcry over, over the way that the pro market has been, um, seemingly treated over the last year or so with, with, you know, uh, no new Mac pro in sight. Um, the, maybe the MacBook pro not, not meeting people's needs the way that, that they think they do. Um, so it's kind of interesting. Like, I think people just get really passionate about both of these companies. And then, you know, when they get frustrated, um, in both cases, you know, they'll, They'll let them know about it. Yeah, I I agree for sure. I think that uh, you know a less gentle way to say that is one way that they are you know say part of what you said is one way that those two companies are similar is that I think they are both have a pretty uh, sketchy track record with anything that touches the internet. Yeah, that's that's fair. I mean, you know, Nintendo's way behind on that, um, and you know. Apple and, and a lot of their services uh, certainly have issues. I would say the difference is, is that I think iCloud and what Apple has done with their online services, it seems as though they have made a shift and are maybe starting to figure some of it out. Like iCloud Drive has been pretty solid for me, um, where it feels as though Nintendo has had, this is at least their third attempt at doing this kind of a thing and it doesn't seem like they have figured it out at all. Yeah, yeah, I mean the 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 fact that I I uh I can't even tell what people are playing is really frustrating. So um again going back to that that menu inside of Splatoon where where I can look at at all of my uh uh Switch friends, you know, it'll say like three or four of them are online. But um, it doesn't say what they're playing. So some, you know, one of those people, um, I backed out to the main menu in the Switch and it said they were playing Street Fighter. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's great. Good for them. Street Fighter's fun. But, you know, why is it telling me that they're available in Splatoon? Because 
they I don't they might not even own Splatoon. Um, so it's a little it's a little frustrating. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, like just jumping into the lobby and playing with three or or I'm sorry seven random people is is still a lot of fun and something that I've spent way too much time on the past few days. Oh, I I, I agree. That is one thing is that the the just regular play with strangers online mode has been really solid for me. Um, but I think that this, uh, this whole thing that they're doing with, uh, the switch iOS app that they have that seems basically useless to me as a way to communicate with people. And the fact that I can't do so much as I want to send you a message to be like, Hey, you want to play a game, right? Uh, I can't do so much as that. Uh, seems strange to me. Yeah, I guess everybody in tech is interested in making a messaging app except for Nintendo. Yeah, and it's surprising to me, too, because if you've ever used uh, an Xbox, who kind of, I think, pioneered this on consoles, or a PlayStation now, who came along a little later, like, they both have nailed this. You know, the uh, online communication with your friends. So it... I, I, they really could have just copied what Xbox does and it would have been fantastic, but I, I guess they didn't want to do that. They wanted to do their own take on it. Yeah. And, you know, I guess the, you know, they, they try to take, um, into account, you know, stuff like safety and, uh, maybe not so much privacy like, like Apple might, but, um, you know, they definitely want kids to be safe on their, on their network. So I can kind of see how that might, um, you know, sort of influence a lot of the decisions that they make about online functionality. But, um, you know, just having a simple messaging, even even if it was like canned um, things that you could say to your friends, you know, like, you know, you, you would you would tap a button and it would say like, hey, want to play? And, you know, you wouldn't have any opportunity to edit that. And then if I could respond with something, you know, like no, and then like a date picker would show up and I could say like, I'm available after seven or something like that. Um, that would be great. And also it would probably eliminate like time zone confusion and stuff like that. <laughs> um, but that app is actually, um, it has a really nice feature where you can sort of look at your play history in Splatoon. Have you messed around with that at all? Yeah, I have looked at that. To me, that part is pretty cool. Uh, it's loads weirdly slow which yeah. I don't quite understand. It's extremely slow. Uh, once it loads, it's okay. But I think they're maybe just using like a web view or something for that. Yeah, um, I mean, my my snobby iOS developer take on it also is that the design is bizarre. Like you, you know, you select Splatoon and then a modal slides up and then there's like some weird tab bar slash navigation thing like halfway up the screen. <laughs> um, but it's got a lot of really cool data in it. It does have a lot of cool data. I'm just surprised that I thought when they, you know, did the partnership with DNA, it was specifically so, you know, they would have people with this kind of experience that they have not uh, demonstrated being able to pull off internally in the past. And it doesn't really feel like they're like that's happening. Yeah, I think I think most everything they do is is on both iOS and Android too, right? So they probably rely pretty heavily on on a lot of stuff like web views and, and other cross-platform tools. Yeah, that that makes sense. The um the the tw- the on- the last thing I want to say about it is I read a tweet that was pretty funny that said uh you know, Nintendo is a 32 billion dollar company with like 5,000 employees or something and there are single person indie shops who are doing who seem to be able to get online more right than they can. Oh, yeah. No, totally. Yeah, like the guy who does Stardew Valley, right? He just added some online functionality, and that's literally one guy. <laughs> um, so moving on from uh, Nintendo, uh, you were saying that you, know, you did these classes in high school and uh, you know where you were learning about programming and uh, computer graphics and that sort of thing. What happened next? Uh, yeah, so I went to college, uh, computer science, um, you know, still had in my mind that I was going to be developing video games, you know, as, as, a, as a career. Um, but at the same time, I really wasn't, you know, coding or anything like outside of classes or, or anything like that. Um, just didn't really know where to start. 
Uh, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I, I guess I didn't put the effort in either. You know, I was, uh, I guess in that era was the Nintendo 64 days. So I was playing a lot of, you know, GoldenEye and, and Mario Kart and, and the wrestling games and stuff like that. So, you know, that was actually eating up uh, the time that I probably should have spent learning game development. Uh, so when I graduated, um, which was shortly after 9-11, um, it was really hard to find a, a job programming in the in the game industry. Uh-huh. So um, I actually wound up doing uh, QA at that point because, you know, I was still thinking like, hey, I can get my foot in the door uh, doing QA. And I, and I worked at a company called um, Acclaim, if you're familiar with them. Yes. But uh, remind me what they do, because the um, name is very familiar. Yeah, they don't they're not around anymore, um, but they were really uh, popular in the 90s. Uh, for a lot of the licensed uh, content that they put out. So they they put out games um, like uh, from Marvel and uh, WWF. Um, but they, their biggest thing was that they were um, bringing some arcade ports home like NBA Jam and, and Mortal Kombat. Uh, so, you know, when I was there, uh, those days had, had sort of long passed. I was there kind of shortly before they actually shut down. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, my time there, I was, you know, kind of helped me realize that, um, it was, you know, we were building games that were nothing like what, uh, Nintendo might make. <laughs> and, uh, it just seemed like, you know, working in the game industry was going to be, uh, a place where I would kind of just be frustrated with, with the kind of stuff I was working on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, at that time I figured like, Hey, you know, this, this is really not working out, but I've got this, this computer science background. And, um, you know, I went to a school that taught, uh, using Java as the teaching language. So, um, you know, nine 11 was now like a few years in the rear view and, and, um, the economy had kind of swung back up again. Uh, so I got a job doing uh, Java web development. How was that? That sounds exciting. Yeah, well, I mean, it was, you know, it seemed kind of um, like it might be boring at first because, mm-hmm. you know, when I thought of the web, um, it was it was pretty lame. Uh, you know, I, I was thinking of like what websites were like in the very early 2000s. Um, they were pretty bad. They were ugly. Uh, they would they were slow. Typically, um, the the user interfaces were were really really painful. Yeah, this would be kind of pre what we think of as like Web two point right? Right, like very right, exactly. pre, like right before. Yeah, like I was um, mainly doing stuff like ordering systems for for restaurants and and um, yeah, it was it was bad. It was bad. But then. You know, as you say, Web 2.0 kind of kind of came out. Um, you know, Flash uh, really got um, sort of ubiquitous. Um, websites like Flickr um, were doing really interesting things with, um, you know, dynamic HTML and, and AJAX. Uh, so, you know, they were sort of building, you know, the first generation of like cool web apps where, you know, you would click a button and instead of, um, the browser loading another page, you'd click a button and like a very small part of the page would, would update. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, that, that was, that was really appealing to me at the time. Um, because you know, it, it kind of felt like the web was suddenly cool. Um, and then the other thing was, you know, uh, social media was, was sort of in its infancy, right? So, um, you know, you had sites like Flickr and, 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 um, YouTube, which were sort of like places where people could upload content, um, and then you had, you know, Facebook, right? Facebook was, was, uh, really starting to pick up steam at the time. And that was, that was just like such a, such a cool, um, website in, in its day. And also it was, it was, it was uh, a little exclusive, right? Like you couldn't, not any, anybody could just sign up for Facebook back then. Um, you need to, you needed to either be in a particular school or, or work at a particular place. Um, but, um, you know, once you got in, it was it was pretty fantastic. Yeah, it seems like you were you know you got in right before all of that really exciting stuff. You know, right before the web got super exciting in like the mid two thousands. So it's probably actually a really good time to start your career. Yeah, because it kind of felt like you know I was I was a part of something that was um, kind of on the rise and you know was like the next big thing and 
you know, I, not only that, but like, I, you know, I knew how to do it. Right. I learned, you know, how to do things in Ajax and, and make like really cool interactive web pages. Whereas people that were probably already working for a couple of years somewhere else, you know, they were probably stuck maintaining, um, you know, an older website and, you know, probably spending a lot of their time solving issues like scaling. Right. Uh-huh. Um, whereas, you know, I was building like this really cool new thing. Moving on from that, so you're doing web development, you're doing Java web development, and then eventually this leads you into doing iOS apps. It seems like we've been doing the iPhone stuff for about the same amount of time, which is to say, as long as that's been a job. Uh, what led you to iOS? How'd you get started there? Um, well, well, so the thing with with um, with me and Apple was that you know when I was in college, uh, one of my roommates. Uh, was was super excited about the release of OS ten, and I was really looking forward to. Um, I guess it was Windows XP at that time, and I really just didn't understand like what what he was talking about, and like why anybody would ever want to use a Mac, and and you know nobody uses those; they're really expensive, and you know their floppy disks are different, and the mouse is very strange. Um, but at working as a Java developer. Um, it sort of became the the platform of choice for for Java developers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I remember uh, a boss I had at the time. He went to Sun's uh, Java One conference that you know was kind of like the Java World's equivalent of of uh, DubDub. And you know, he came back and he's like, "Wow, like everybody there had a Mac uh, or a PowerBook." Um, so you know, I kind of got interested in, and I had an iPod. So you know that that sort of halo effect that people talk about sometimes um, definitely took a hold of me. You know, like I love my iPod. It seemed like all the Java developers were using Macs to, to do their day-to-day development. So I got really interested in them. Um, and, you know, I kind of thought to myself a time or two, like, you know, I see, you know, I'm, I'm doing all this web stuff, but I see, you know, there's, there's this whole sort of um, community out there of people making like pretty interesting native software. Um, but I just didn't really see, a, um, you know, anywhere that, that I could sort of make any kind of impact there. So I never, I never really tried it. Um, but then, um, you know, in 2008, uh, when the, when the SDK came out, the, the place I was working for at the time as a, as a Java developer, they knew I was a big Apple fan and, uh, they were like, Hey, you know, you're not really working on any projects right now. Um, we want to make an iPhone app. Uh, what do you think? You, you, do you want to do that? And I was actually working for the the New York City government at the time. So what we wanted to do was um, build an app that would um, integrate with our three one one service, which was the you know the non emergency um, phone hotline. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, you know I, I spent a couple of months learning the SDK. Um, thank you, New York City taxpayers, for. <laughs> funding my iOS education, but, um, you know, there were, there were, there were really no, uh, books at the time. I think the only book at the time was, was one about jailbroken development. And I remember um, that one. Yeah. And I think it was by Erica Sadoon. And I, I didn't really, you know, looking back, like it probably would have been useful to take a look at that. But, um, at the time I just didn't see it. Like I didn't really understand jailbroken development. So I thought maybe it was like a completely different thing. Um, so I, I didn't, look at that at all. I just, uh, read the documentation in the SDK and, um, you know, it was, it was pretty tough. You know, I, I invented a, like a, like a tab bar controller before realizing that it was already in there. Um, but, um, you know, eventually I, I kind of, I kind of got into it and then was able to ship something, you know, several months after, after starting on it. Mm. I had a similar experience, except I was working in an internship, so they sort of paid for my, uh, you know, education at that point. And the, I I remember that book, and I think the thing is, is that jailbroken development was fairly different from uh, non, you know, the official SDK, or maybe that, or maybe I'm just remembering it wrong is also a possibility because this was like nine years ago. But I, I basically did the same thing. So I remember I just really, uh, I used a lot of, um, you know, Mac books. I read the, I had already read the Aaron Hillegas, uh, you know, book with the um, bicycle or twirly thing on it. You know which one I'm talking about, the, you know, how to make Mac apps book. 
and then had sort of just that had been enough that I could just look at the documentation and sample code and then get through on that, I guess, apparently, because I did it. Yeah, it's, you know, you gotta, gotta go through that process. Um, you know, when I see the the people that are starting now, I'm very envious of, of everything they have available to them. Um, I mean, the other thing was that I guess Stack Overflow had just came out around the same time too. Mm-hmm. And I was using that, um, to more more to answer questions about about enterprise Java development than than to ask because you know I was I had quite a few years of experience at that point but um, for for iPhone development it was it was a great way for me to kind of get get a little bit of information here and there um, because also you know back at that time I guess you weren't really allowed to post much of anything on the Apple developer forums. If, if I'm not, if I'm remembering that right, like, you, you know, you couldn't blog about anything and, mm-hmm. and you had to be careful with what you said on the official forums. Yeah, that's correct. They had that really strict NDA for a really long time. It felt like. Yeah. So that certainly didn't make things, um, any easier. I guess the, the thing that was, that was, um, best for me was that I, I don't really find Java and Objective-C to be really all that different. I mean, mm-hmm. the, you know, you, you've got the, the power of C, obviously, underlying Objective-C. But, you know, when I looked at it, it was mostly like, okay, well, you know, it used to be that I'd have a dot and some parentheses, but instead I'm going to have these square brackets. Um, and then other times I'm still going to use a dot. So um, it was really more about getting my head around the memory management um, but, but, you know, that was like, a, a much easier task. And then of course, you know, understanding the frameworks, um, understanding the design patterns, you know, I was very familiar with MVC at the time because mm-hmm. that's a pretty popular design pattern amongst Java web frameworks, but, um, you know, stuff like delegation and, and, you know, things like notifications, I wasn't really super familiar with those. So, uh, I had to learn those as I went. Yeah. Uh, the nice thing on iOS, though, at the time was that the API, you know, the, the number of things you actually needed to learn and the size of the frameworks was so much smaller than it is today that there were just a few design patterns that were used a lot. And you didn't have a lot of what we have to deal with now with, uh, you know, different like concurrency and a million different frameworks and all the stuff that we have now. Yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes now when you want to, implement something that you've maybe never worked on before, you know, you spend half the day, like just trying to make sense of, of what you're actually supposed to be using because, you know, sometimes there'll be documentation in there that's, that's way out of date and, mm-hmm. and maybe there's a far better way to do something now. So that, that can always be tough. Yeah. I will also somewhat frequently be looking up API docs for a thing and think, Oh, this is this is great! Like they added this new frame, you know, they added this new API on you know whatever class or whatever. Uh, this will really help me, and I'll see it came out in like iOS six, right? Yeah, then you always feel so dumb, right? That's- I feel super <laughs> dumb when that happens. Things that yeah. happen, things that literally you know came out five years ago, uh, and I just never discovered them because I never had to touch this before. There's just you know they add so much every year. Where in the uh, you know iPhone OS two original SDK time, you know, there was still a lot there, but compared to today, it was so much smaller. Yeah, no, it's, it's a totally different animal now. So you made this uh, 311 app for the non-emergency services New York City thing. Uh, and then what was the next, what was the next step in your career towards where you are now? Uh, well, I did that for a couple of years and then... Um I was lucky enough to meet um, uh, Lucius Kwok, who's uh, the founder of, of Felt Tip Inc. He he created uh, Sound Studio for Mac, which is which is mm-hmm. a pretty old school app in in uh, in terms of you know this world that we're in. Uh, and uh, you know, I left the city, worked with him, uh, learned a ton. Um, that's really the only place a- along my career where I did any significant amount of of uh, Mac development. Um, so, you know, I learned a little bit about that. Um, you know, sound studio is a really good citizen and, and, you know, he has a a number of iOS apps too, that are really great platform citizens. So I got to learn, 
you know, a couple of technologies that, that, um, I might not have learned elsewhere, like, you know, stuff like being really good about localization. Um, Mm -hmm. so it was, it was pretty, pretty great. And, uh, you know, getting to work with him for a couple of years, I really learned a lot. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, I, I do remember that app, although I know I must have loaded it at some point, but it might have been several years ago now. So I'm having a little bit of trouble remembering it other than that it was a uh, application for doing work with sound. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a great uh, tool for uh, very simple audio editing or audio recording. Um, and then, yeah, there's some simple editing tools in there as well. Um, so it's, it's a really nice app. It's still in the Mac app store, um, still gets updates. So it's, it's pretty cool to see it be modernized, um, even to this day. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to have to make a point to look it up again since I haven't looked at it in so long and I'm such an audio nerd. Uh, so the next thing that you, uh, did was you went to do some consulting. Yeah. As, as most, I think, (laughs) iOS developers do, right? They, they'll, you know, get a couple of years under their belt and then go out and try to conquer the world and, you know, do some contract work and, you know, maybe put an app or two of their own in the app store. Um, and that was a fun way to spend a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after that, uh, I moved on to, um, a company called wildcard. Um, we made kind of like a new kind of web browser and then um, we pivoted into a news app, um, which actually was a really, really nicely designed app. Um, we got uh, picked by Apple for, for one of the, you know, the nicest apps in the app store uh, in 2015. It, you know, it wasn't an Apple design award, but it was one of those year end lists that they mm-hmm. put together um, at the end of the year. So that was pretty cool. Um, and then, uh, yeah, since then I've been, I've been working at the skim. That is very cool. So something we were talking about, uh, before the podcast was that you've been thinking about, uh, subscriptions as a, you know, revenue model for applications. Um, you know, which is a new thing, you know, relatively it's only been around in the last year or so, I guess. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, it's it's been around. I mean, for for quite a few years at this point, but it's really only been opened up to all developers. You know, in the last the last couple of years. Yeah, um, that's that's actually correct because there was the yeah, newsstand so, you know, thing and I, I, right. Originally, it was newsstand, and you know, it was mostly uh, for publishing companies. Um, so, you know, I think probably uh, some developers probably tried to sort of get around that, and and Apple didn't let them. Uh, some other people, you know, started their own publications and, um, you know, tried that out for a little bit. Um, but, you know, in the last couple of years, um, Apple's opened up uh, things to let, you know, not just uh, publications, but other news apps or, you know, even apps in completely different categories uh, use subscriptions. Um and it's it's funny. I was I was uh, at the beginning of this year. I was putting together a talk on um, you know what what we do at the skim, and and um, part of that was hey, you know, we're we're a subscription app, and uh, you know here's how you you can implement subscriptions in your app as a developer. So it was you know m- more of a tech talk. But um, at that t- at that time uh, that week, Apple had put out a press release about um, this was this was the beginning of the year about how much money they made in the App Store last year and how much they had paid out to developers, and uh, they said something like subscription revenue in the App Store had gone up by seventy four percent in uh, twenty sixteen. Um, so you know I was kind of like oh you know I should I should throw a slide in here about you know apps that are that are using subscriptions as a as a business model just to kind of you know, highlight the, the importance of this. So, um, in looking at that, I found that most of the categories in the app store, the top grossing apps were subscription based. They, they had auto renewable subscriptions and, you know, these were in categories like utilities and, and fitness, um, you know, not games obviously, cause that's in app purchase, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, subscriptions were, were, um, were super popular at the time. Um, or, or even today. And, you know, it's really interesting because this year um, at WWDC, Apple's introduced quite a few new features to help out uh, developers that, that are looking at that as a, as a business model. 
That is super interesting. I had never noticed or thought about that. Uh, but it does kind of make sense, right? If you can, uh, you know, that a subscription type model is a great one to have because, you know, if you can just add more users every month than you lose, it's much more sustainable. Yeah, I mean, there's there's apps that I use, you know, some some of them daily, some of them maybe a little less frequently than daily, you know, more, more like a few times a week and some, you know, that are even maybe like every couple of weeks, but, you know, I still will use them consistently throughout the year. And, you know, I paid these developers like $3, like six years ago. (laughs) So, you know, um, maybe they might want to try looking at subscriptions. Um, cause yeah, you, you, you know, you get that, that revenue every month. It's, it's a predictable, revenue stream. And, um, you know, I, I mean, some of them, like we've seen some apps try that, right? Like I know, uh, more recently, most recently, um, it looks like one password is, is maybe moving to a subscription model or at least Um, kind of trying to push people in that direction a little bit more, emphasize it a little bit more. Yeah. And, you know, there's been a bit of a backlash, but, um, you know, people hate change and, uh, you know, hopefully it works out for them. Yeah, it's also extremely cheap, though. Like, I had seen all of the backlash before I went to look at it. It's like $4 a month or something. It's like I switched over to this subscription thing because you get more features. So that's fine. Yeah, that's I mean, $4 a month is nothing, especially for something like that, which you're probably using several times throughout the day. Yeah, it's Um, probably my most used third party app for sure. Yeah. And, you know, from, from their side, I mean, they're, you know, especially if they're, if they're uh, doing um, subscriptions through, through Apple, you know, one of the ways that Apple's helping developers out there is uh, you can make more money after a year, right? Like, so, you know, we're used to, to seeing um, paid downloads and, and, and in-app purchases where the developer takes home 70%. But if you manage to, keep a subscriber for more than a year, then Apple will give you 85% of what, of what that user's paying. Yeah. Which is fantastic. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that was really interesting that, that uh, I don't know if you, if you've seen this, but um, there's this idea of uh, involuntary churn, which is when a customer will have their uh, credit card purchase be declined. So, you know, if it's an auto renewable subscription, you uh, subscribe for a few months and then, you know, one month your credit card is expired. So now um, Apple can't process the payment. Mm-hmm. Um, so Apple calls that involuntary churn. And um, in, in years past, uh, the way that Apple's handled that is they will continue to retry billing the customer for several hours. <laughs> so um, not a lot of time for, for the for the user to get their, you know, their account in order. I mean, you know, I know that the way that I handle that personally is I will change my credit card and then I will just wait for, you know, emails and, and, um, snail mails from the different companies that I owe money to telling me like, Hey, you know, we can't process your credit card information. And then, you know, one by one going through and and updating them. Um, so it takes me a while when I, when I change my credit card information. Mm-hmm. So Apple was only retrying this for a few hours, but, um, now they're actually, uh, retrying for up to 60 days. Oh, that's so, great. Yeah. I mean, they've, uh, they, I, uh, God, I, I think they might've said a number somewhere about, you know, what kind of, um, increase this has led to in, in getting the customer back. Um, but also they're, they're also providing developers with data around why a subscription is ended. So if you have, um, a way to reach out to a customer and you find out from Apple that they, um, you know, their, their payment failed because of their credit card, then you can actually reach out to that customer and be like, Hey, you know, you might want to update your, your credit card information in the iTunes store so that, you know, we can, we can, uh, process this and, and get, um, the content out to you. Yeah, it seems, you know, based on what you're saying and, you know, what I've heard in the past, it seems like this is a model that Apple would really like to move people to, perhaps, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I have, you know, a growing list of, of, um, 
subscriptions uh, that I have in my iTunes account. Um, and, you know, most of them are content apps, you know, uh, news apps, uh, stuff like video. Um, so, you know, just for, for, I guess the health of the industry, um, I'd love to see some more people that make things like utilities and stuff, try them out. Yeah. Because it actually does benefit Apple too. Uh, if people don't have a bunch of apps, which never become updated and just kind of go away after a while because the developer couldn't afford to keep working on it. Uh, that's, that's good for Apple. That's good for the platform. That's, that's great for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, users will continue to get really nice apps. Uh, developers can have sustainable businesses and, and Apple continues to, uh, you know, report an increase in services revenue. Yeah, that's true. They can do that. Um, which, which we know they love to report that, uh, the, so something, uh, some, something that we were talking about, which was a little bit more technical is you were mentioning the idea of that you were working at a, a healthy startup, you know, that is going to continue to be around and whatnot. And, that you aren't having to think in terms of developing an MVP and just getting things out as quickly as possible, but get to think more in terms of, you know, code that might be around for a few years and developing things in a more sustainable way and what that looks like for you. So maybe we could just, you know, speak about that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of where my head's been at lately. Um, just thinking about like building sustainable, um, software, if that makes sense, not from a business perspective, but really just from a, from a code perspective. Um, Mm -hmm. it's, it's the kind of thing where like, you know, when, when I compare, um, you know, my five or six years doing Java to my nine years of doing iOS development, um, the speed of the, the evolution of the two platforms is, you know, night and day. Um, I think part of that is is sort of like who the steward of of these platforms are. So, mm-hmm. you know, I haven't done any Java development in like close to ten years, so I don't know if it's changed. But um, Sun, who who was you know guiding Java in the um, years leading up to Oracle's acquisition, um, really didn't do a good job of like pushing things forward. Whereas you know Apple, who are you know trying to evolve their platform so that they can you know, sell even more iPhones are doing, um, sort of an amazing job where, where things can change, um, so rapidly. So, so one example that, that I can think back to is when I was doing job development, like there was a lot of controversy over closures and adding them to the language and their, uh, process was that they would have these, um, you know, sort of, uh, specs, uh, RF, RF, uh, RFCs, I think they were called. Mm-hmm. And there were two competing RFCs for how, how they were going to do closures on the language. And just due to the uh, Java community process, um, it, they were kind of at a standstill and, and nothing was was moving forward. So the language didn't have closures. And then I compare that to like something like with Swift, where, you know, that's similarly sort of developed out in the open and... Um, you know, there's there was the the recent uh, file private uh, controversy from 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 last year, mm-hmm. um, and you know th- there was a lot of uh, of uh, passionate takes on on you know both sides of the equation, and um, eventually you know Apple uh, the, the 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 team at, at behind Swift at Apple were you know like okay, well this is the way it's going to be, and then you know at WWDC when they were talking about what's new in Swift, uh, they they said what the change was. And then, um, the presenter said something like, and let's never speak of this again. (laughs) And, you know, we've kind of all moved on with our lives now. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's just interesting, like to see, um, how quickly that the, the platform can evolve. And, you know, part of that, um, means that, you know, you have to evolve with it. Right. So I've always found that that kind of riding as, as sort of close to the rails as possible, um, really helps because, you know, you've probably got enough time uh, that you spend worrying about the changes in, in Apple's technologies that if you're doing things like involving, you know, third-party libraries um, to sort of outsource, like, key parts of your application, um, you're really doing yourself a disservice because, you know, there's a chance that that library may not evolve at the same pace 
Um, or, uh, you know, if it does now you've got two things to keep up with. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that's the same thing applies to, to sort of like a lot of the alternative design patterns that I see, um, coming to be in the community. Whereas, you know, MVC does a really great job of, of, um, of, of, uh, you know, expressing apps and, and a great way to, to kind of architect apps. Um, so, you know, if you, if you have these other design patterns in there, it's really hard to kind of keep up with, with where things are going. Um, the other thing too, is just, you know, as you're, as you're, um, hiring at a company, um, you kind of pigeonhole yourself where, you know, you might have in your job description, like, Hey, you know, iOS developers perspective hire, uh, we are, you know, building our app in this framework and it's really hard to hire iOS developers nowadays. So when you kind of limit the talent pool to just be people that are familiar with that framework or even like that framework, right? Like uh-huh. you might have somebody that has experience with it and, and really has a distaste for it. Um, it makes it really hard to hire. And then, you know, also if you, if you manage to hire somebody that maybe doesn't have experience in that framework, it's really hard for them to learn it. Yeah, absolutely. That's true. I, you know, there are times where some of these other things in very specific cases uh, can be, you know, used and really be good. But for me, uh, for the majority of apps that I write, where I'm not in one of those very specific cases, uh, sticking as close to the design patterns that are present in, you know, Foundation and Swift and UIKit and all of those things. I think serves me pretty well because whatever Apple changes, I'm going to have the least amount of uh, friction, you know, adapting to those changes. Exactly. And that happens annually. So, you know, the, 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 the amount of time you can spend kind of updating your app for the new OS uh, that you can keep to a minimum, the better. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. Like, you know, I used this one uh, very popular library that I won't name that is a really great library. I love, I love how vague both of us are being. Yeah. <laughs> that is a really great library and does, uh, and is actually, you know, a pretty good Swift citizen and everything. But they really do seem to take every year as a chance to do like a minor rewrite of it, you know, to really change the API. And now, so every year, because I've used this thing, I have to spend so much time updating my version of Swift and, you know, adapting new APIs and then also spend, you know, one to several days adapting to the new version of this uh, other library that I have used. And, you know, that's a very, that's not, I've, I've debated whether that's worth it or not at different times. Yeah. I mean, when you see, you know, you're at WWDC and you're, you're watching all these sessions and you're getting exp- inspired about, you know, what new features you want to bring into your app. And, and then you've got to kind of spend time, you know, updating things. It's, it's too bad. And I mean, you know, obviously like even sticking just with Apple's stuff, like you have to do that too. Right. I mean, yeah. You know, Swift two to Swift three, right. Like that was a week of work for, that everybody. was horrible. <laughs> um, but <laughs> if you can just sort of contain those to, to updating, to the things that Apple needs you to update to, then, you know, it's, it's less time spent overall. Yeah. I mean, the way I would phrase that is that those are unavoidable. Like I will have to update to the new version of Swift or, you know, whatever new AP, you know, if APIs have been deprecated and there's something new, I'm going to have to make those transitions. But, uh, those third party, you know, dependencies and liabilities that I take on are, my choice and I need to decide whether doing things in this way that gets me a little bit further from the way Apple maybe originally thought about it is gets me further from the core APIs. Uh, I have to think about if that's the right decision for my app based on what my needs are and how much I'm getting from it. Yeah. And certainly there's, there's places where it's totally appropriate. You know, there's, there's a lot of things in iOS that are really hard to do just using the SDK. Um, and in those cases, like, you know, you either have to spend a month researching, you know, how to how to best put like 
you know, for example, GIFs in your application or something uh-huh. like that. Whereas you could, you know, use a library like the one that, that uh, Flipboard has provided or something and uh, save yourself a lot of time and, you know, kind of stick to what you know best and in delivering features in your app. Yeah. And for me, you know, I will use the larger things when they're appropriate. Like, you know, like keep saying, I don't want to make a hard and fast rule ever. I will use the larger things when they're very appropriate and I'm getting a lot out of it. Um, but I will use the smaller things with a little bit more abandon, you know, like a small, you know, image caching library or, you know, that gift thing or, you know, stuff like that, that I'm just, I know I could just replace in a day if I, re- you know, a couple days if I really needed to. Um, those don't bother me as much because they don't feel core to what my app is doing. And if I had to lose them at some point, it wouldn't be a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, wrapping up, uh, I've been asking everybody, uh, you know, since we're still s- sort of close to WWC and we're before the time that iOS 11 and the new Xcode comes out, uh, let me just ask you, what have you been most excited about and what are you uh, working on that you can speak of with those things? Yeah, it's it's kind of a weird year, right? Because um, the big ticket items were things like AR kit, machine learning, and mm-hmm. um, you know pro- productivity on the iPad. And I'm not really working on anything like that as a user. Like following made with AR kit is amazing, <laughs> but um, I just don't see myself implementing anything with that mm-hmm. anytime soon. Um, so it's been more stuff like you know the great upgrades in Xcode nine. Uh, stuff like the re- refactoring tools, um, the the new sanitizers, like the the main thread checker um, has has saved me a couple of times already. Um, where you know I had no idea I was I was doing UI kit stuff on the main thread where uh-huh. I wasn't supposed to be in a couple of cases, which has uh, been pretty amazing. Um, it's been more about like a lot of little things, you know, like. Uh, there's like improved uh, spotlight integration with core data. There's like a password autofill in Safari, uh-huh. um, you know, things that are not really going to take me a ton of work. It's not, you know, I'm not going to spend my summer doing a lot of that stuff because, because they're kind of just like one off little things. Um, the one thing though, that I'm like not sure about is, uh, and maybe I'm a little scared about is, you know, all the rumors are that we've got some sort of edge to edge, brand new kind of form factor coming out. Uh Um, And, you know, it seems like Apple's providing guidance on like, hey, you know, you need to take these safe area guides um, seriously. You you might want to look at large titles. And, (laughs) you know, how does that fit into um, this new form factor? Um, You know, I mean, mean, a lot of people have said like, you know, these large titles look stupid. Uh, There's so much wasted space on top. But, you know, is that because the new phone is going to have the camera in a place that, you know, we're not used to? Um, so it's it's been more like, you know, kind of curious about, like, where that stuff is going to wind up. And, um, you know, am I, am I frantically going to be updating stuff, like, you know, right after the, the event? Um, uh-huh trying to get ready for iOS 11. I mean, you know, I've been, I've been trying to, to look at the safe areas and, 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 you know, make sure that, that everything uh, that I have is, is sort of within those guides in the right way. But, um, you know, I don't know how important that's really going to be. I mean, it seems like it's going to be pretty important, but um, you know, it's kind of that, that sort of uncertainty. Um, Cause I remember I spent probably about a week um, when they announced the, the six, and the, uh, the six plus, you know, two brand new mm-hmm. sizes. And, you know, I was, I was, uh, I thought I was making great use of auto layout in the app I was working on at the time, but, um, that showed me that I wasn't. <laughs> uh, so I spent a lot of time adding a lot more constraints that, that I didn't realize I needed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just hoping that, that, uh, you know, that I, I don't kind of get caught with my pants down like I did then. Well, I mean, thankfully, uh, you know, what you're saying about sticking closer to the, you know, core frameworks is that is one place where it will really help you that that is your approach, because I think they do try and guide you into making it the least painful that it can be, 
you know, where maybe you spent a week on that, but somebody else may have spent, you know, a month on that or something. Yeah, I, I hope so. Yeah. So uh, I hear a cat in the background uh, who seems yes. like it needs you to go feed it or pet it. Um, yes, it needs to be pet. Yeah. So, uh, Brian, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been great. Yeah, thanks a lot, Colin. It's been uh, fantastic. Really appreciate it. Yeah, so, well, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, so let's just wrap up by saying how people can find you on the internet and your work. Um, you can find me on Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash B, B as in boy, Papa, uh, P-A-P-A. Uh, I'm on there. I'm tweeting. And uh, if you like Splatoon, let's play Splatoon. I'm not going to say my friend code. <laughs> Cause I don't know it off the top of my head, but, uh, just, uh, slide up into my DMS and I can hit you up with it. Fantastic. We should get a run loop, uh, uh, competitive party, whatever that's called in Splatoon going. That would be so awesome, but we would have to deal with the, with the Nintendo app. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Uh, so if you would like to find uh, me on Twitter, you can do so at twitter.com slash Colin Donnell. You can find The Run Loop at twitter.com slash The Run Loop. And if you would like to support the show on Patreon, help me with uh, you know paying for hosting and whatnot, uh, you can do so at patreon.com slash Colin Donnell. Uh, Brian, once again, thank you so much for coming on the show and have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Colin.